You're listening to Around Comics, episode 142. another Monday edition of Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. I'm Christopher Neesman, and I'll be your guide for the next hour of comics news and information. Coming up on this episode, we get you ready for the week ahead with new trade paperback, single issue, and DVD releases. You'll hear my conversation with up-and-coming Marvel writer Zeb Wells. Tom Caters is back as the answer man. He even gets an answer from last week's segment. Scotty Young's epic three-week rant on Smallville concludes this week. We have more manga, webcomic, and movie suggestions. And in an all-new segment, John Mayo breaks down the sales and market trends inside Diamond's Top 300. All that and more is next on Around Comics. This episode of Around Comics is brought to you by Borders. Sink your teeth into the story that introduced the world to Anita Blake, Vampire Hunter. Get your copy of Guilty Pleasures by Laurel K. Hamilton at your local Borders. Borders is your home for the tastiest fantasy novels. Find a store near you at BordersStores.com. Whether you know his work from The New Warriors, Heroes for Hire, Peter Parker Spider-Man, or other titles, Zeb Wells is making an impression on comics fans. Now that he's been announced as one of the four writers that will be bringing the Amazing Spider-Man to shelves three times each month, there's no question that he's become a name to watch. And Around Comics is happy to welcome Zeb Wells. Zeb, thanks for spending some time with us tonight. Thank you. It was uh, a couple months ago that it was announced that you were going to be on one of the creative teams for Marvel's uh, three times a month relaunch of Amazing Spider-Man. What was uh, yeah. y- what was your initial reaction uh, when you found out you were going to be on one of those creative teams? Oh yeah, it was it was definitely really exciting. You know, I didn't see it coming at all. Steve Wecker just called me out of the blue and asked if I'd be interested, and you know probably for my benefit acted uh, relieved when I said yes I have a hard time believing uh, it was really in question whether it's a yes or not but uh, it was definitely you know an exciting day now did you grow up as a Spider-Man fan oh definitely I think that's you know because I got started because uh, someone that lived in the basement of the house I was living in gave me a box of comics and one of the first ones I read through was that giant size Spider-Man number one with the Sinister Six, which, uh, you know, I, which I always just loved. And I, and I, and there were a bunch of those from that era in there and I just ate them up. Now, now with the new series 
uh, going to the to the three times a month. There's been you know a lot of people are very interested in how that entire dynamic is going to work uh, between you and the other writers and artists. And you know there's been the comparisons with with DC's 52 and Countdown of being you know a, a four times a month series. But um, I, I think those are all uh, very very different entities in how the creative teams have worked. What what's been the breakdown on how the four creative teams for Amazing have been working together? Well, it's basically, you know, Steve wants to make sure that every writer gets a chance to tell his own story. You know, you don't want it to be a, a situation where, you know, somebody has to finish someone else's story or, or you know, like the tone of the story, or the voice of the story will change right in the middle of it. So it's basically, you know, it's basically like, uh, yeah, like a regular monthly book with uh, with alternating uh, with an alternating creative team, except you know we, we're working far enough in advance that you'll finish a you'll finish an art, and it will all come out you know three times three times a month until it's done. And so basically, the it's been pretty fun because we basically just keep in touch through a conference call and emails, and we just make sure that everything is going to flow correctly um, from one month to the next and also we have overarching subplots and uh, you know we really wanted to bring back a cast of supporting characters so we have to keep all of them straight and so it's basically kind of cool because you have your own story that you're working on but you also have like a, a think tank that you can throw ideas to and, and the, the ideas get bounced around and bounced back to you. Now, is there a, a lead writer to kind of keep things uh, tied together, or is that more of a of a, an editorial? Yeah, that's more of an editorial thing, and then uh, then just the hive mind, you know, is in charge of keeping, making sure, or guiding the direction of the book. Now, now the the other writers on the series, uh, Mark Guggenheim, uh, Dan Slott, and um, uh, Bob Gale. Bob Gale, sure. But uh, Back to the Future fame. Yeah, that's right. Uh, who out of who out of the other three writers has uh, have you had uh, the most fun working with, or as you know, kind of like you said, that has it just been the hive mind of of all of those personalities? Yeah, it's really. I mean, I can't like I know when I throw an idea out there, I usually get good feedback from everybody, you know, and then that that leads to other discussions and whatnot. So uh, yeah, it really has been pretty uh, pretty even as far as who's doing what and, and what comes out, like, you know, but each of them are fun to work with in their, in their, in their own way. You know, it's interesting cause they're, we're all from different age groups. So we are all, you know, really into Spider-Man at different periods of time. So it's kind of fun to get that, all those different perspectives on it. Sure. And you say different age groups and, and I think that, you know, a lot of people and, and rightfully so consider you a, a younger writer, but you've been, you've been writing comics for a while now and you may have the most experience writing Spider-Man of any of the, the group that are, that are on the new project. Yeah, I might. I think I've got, well, yeah, I've got a uh, probably what, 12 issues of Spider-Man under my belt or like if you include the Doc Ock miniseries. Yeah, I, I think I, I think you might be right on that. Yeah, it's uh, dating back. When did you start writing uh, Peter Parker Spider Man? Um, I had uh, I did issue forty two and forty three in two thousand two, and then I think my my seven issue run started in two thousand three, if I'm not mistaken. 
moving on from from Spider Man because you actually do have another ongoing series that that you're working on and that is Heroes for Hire. Uh, now you've taken that series over from Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray. Now the I think there are obvious pressures of working on a, a high profile mainstream character like Spider Man. Uh, does your approach to writing uh, a team book like Heroes for Hire, where uh, the characters are, are definitely known to comic fans but not as iconic, does that change your process as a writer? I think so. I think, I mean, I think just the nature of the beast, you feel like you have a little more room as far as what you can do, or you, or you can think crazier thoughts, I think. And especially, yeah, with a character like Spider-Man, um, just naturally, and especially being on Amazing Spider-Man, you know, you're going to feel some pressure, and obviously you're going to want to stay true to that character, but when you have, you know, you have so much history behind them, but then you go to characters like the ones on Heroes for Hire that have been interpreted many different ways. You know, you kind of feel more free to come with come with your own interpretation of the character. We hear from a lot of different creators that that will will come onto a new team book and they'll have they'll have like preconceived notions of what these characters are. But whenever they get in and start writing them, there always seems to be a surprise character that they really enjoy writing. Uh, more than they thought they would have. Uh, ha- have you had that experience with Heroes for Hire? Yeah, I have. I, you know, I never. Yeah, I think it was for me. It was Shang Chi because I just never, you know, got why that you know what that character was all about. You know, and then and I didn't. And I think you're right. Like even when I started writing it, I don't think I was, I was expecting to like him or, or expecting him to be anything more than, you know, because basically he he. he He'd just been running around like spouting uh, fortune cookie phrases and stuff, <laughs> and uh, and I didn't expect uh, you know he really took on a life of his own, and and I, I think I enjoy writing him the most now. Sure. Well, whenever you get into a team book, what, is it really hard to split up how much? how much time you, you are able to give to each character? Do you find yourself like, wow, I could write a, a Shang-Chi solo book, and do you have to keep yourself from from letting a character take over a series like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of good because, you know, in that situation, I don't know, I, I think I always find that it's better to have too much stuff and have to cut stuff out and... And uh, be going at it from that angle to to be stuck where you know you're like, hey, how how can I fill up a whole issue with with uh, one character or what do I cut to? Like with a team book, and especially if you have a lot of subplots that you want to tell about, you know, you're never in the situation where you're like, what can I cut to here? You know, you've always got something to which just which makes it more stressful on one hand, and then on the other hand, it makes it easier. Heroes for Hire is not your first team book, and not your first team book at Marvel. Uh, you were uh, you were creating the New Warriors with one of the one of the members of Around Comics, Scotty Young. Uh, what was it like yeah. working on New Warriors? And 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 you can give us some dirt too, because because uh, we want to know what what the what the working relationship was like with uh, with Scotty. Well, actually, Scotty was he. He's uh, I don't know, Scotty, I think he's one of the best storytellers I've ever worked with. And I, I had a lot of fun there because sometimes you work with an artist where you put as much as you can into the script and you think it makes, you know, you, you try to make it make as much sense as, as far as, like, the page layout goes. 
but Scotty's one of those artists that he actually goes back and re you know thinks about the scene as well and kind of watches your back and makes sure that everything works out as it's supposed to. And then especially with the uh, with the action stuff, you know, you you write some action scenes, and then when I got the artwork back from Scotty, it was uh, it was super cool. You know, probably the only bad part was you know having to hang out with him at conventions and stuff, which can be unpleasant. <laughs> and he keeps his hotel room much too cold. <laughs> which I'd, I'd rather not go into why I know that. It, it's frightening. I, I've I've heard stories uh, talking about you know artists and 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 artist styles. Uh, Scotty is is really kind of almost jealous right now because you're getting to work with one of his idols in the industry with uh, Chris Bocello. How's uh, how's that been to work with uh, Mr. Bocello? Oh, that's awesome. And it, yeah, it's been even better knowing uh, how much it gets Scotty's goat because. Yeah, no BS. He, he's been, like, as as far as I've known him, he's always, whenever we talk about any project we might be working on, he always finds a way to bring up uh, Generation X and how influential that was on him. I mean, he's a huge Chris Pacello fanboy, so it's been, and, and yeah, but aside from that, just being able to work with Chris Pacello has been awesome. Like, he's done, I've seen one issue completed now, and it just looks awesome. That's uh, Scotty doesn't go fanboy very often, but uh, whenever you no. bring up Bacello, that's that's one guy that gets him. That he, he you can tell he just the, there's an excitement. Oh, yeah. Scotty has mentioned to us in the past that that when you guys were putting together the idea for New Warriors, you didn't really expect Marvel to to bite on the pitch that you gave them. Uh, it seemed like you guys really were given a lot of a lot of free reign to have fun with that book. Yeah, we were. It was it was one of those situations where I don't think that, you know, when, when the first editor, uh, John Meskis, came and asked us to pitch it, like, I don't think it had come down from from on high, you know. I don't think anyone was clamoring for a New Warriors book. And so we basically got to work on the pitch in a vacuum and just say, you know, since we had no mandate, it was just whatever, whatever we wanted to do, we threw in there. And then... Yeah, somehow that thing got pushed through, and then uh, it got put in Mackenzie Cadenhead's hand, who was def- definitely simpatico with what we were trying to do, and so it all it all just seemed to fall into place. And uh, yeah, we got to do almost exactly what we wanted to do. Not not too long after that, uh, the New Warriors are playing a, a huge role in the Marvel U, which uh, you know kind That's of. Right. Uh, out of, out of your series, kind of you know spun you know the the events that started Civil War. What was that you know was that weird to to see that kind of flashpoint come out of the series that you had really kind of fostered for a few years? Yeah, totally. We didn't know that we were just you know stacking logs to be to be thrown <laughs> on the fire of Civil War, but um, it was it was definitely interesting to see. Uh, you know, I, I think it was cool. I think Scotty thought it was cool to see like McNiven. Uh, draw his characters, the character designs that he had come up with, and then to, and then to see Mark write the New Warriors, and uh, yeah, just to be, you know, obviously we can't claim much authorship over Civil War, but it was, it was fun to see them at the beginning of it, although it was hard to see a micro get cooked like that. Do you get attached to characters? I know that I know that Scotty has talked about it in the past that 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 there is a certain level of of attachment that you get, especially when when you're working on on kind of the B and C list characters that you get to to really add a lot to to their history and yeah, legacy. Right. 
you know, it goes back to what I was saying. Like, you work on Spider-Man, and, you know, he's his voice has pretty much become what it is, and you've got to try to play within that. But then when you play with those B characters, you really you're really imbuing them a lot more with your voice, I think. And, uh, yeah, you do get kind of attached to them. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a man. I wasn't crying when, uh, when Microbe got cooked, but I might have got choked up a little. <laughs> it tugged on you just a little bit? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, you, you've done some work outside of, outside of Marvel in the, in the comics room. You worked on uh, a Snake Woman for Virgin Comics, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was was it a big difference working for for Virgin as opposed to Marvel? What was that whole Virgin Comics experience like? Um, I you know it was pretty similar, but that's because the reason I got that job is because uh, Mackenzie Cadenhead, who was the editor on New Warriors, is uh, went over to Virgin shortly after, and so she brought me over. So for me, it was like just working with Mackenzie again. And so, for me, I didn't really notice much of a difference. Sure, it's not like you're going into the into the Marvel offices every day. It's a, you're kind of just looking at the same keyboard, kind of no matter who you're writing right, for. I yeah. guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you're you're a West Coast guy, and uh, I, I think that part of part of being on the West Coast is that you know, you're you're very close to Hollywood. That that has been kind of kind of a part of your career, and you and you play outside of the the comic book sandbox. You've uh, done some uh, some work for Robot Chicken. Yeah, I did. That was actually I got that job um, pretty much the same way I got the Marvel job is from those videos that I made for the for Wizard Magazine. You, you dressed up as Thor and sent it to uh, uh, Seth Green. No, well, <laughs> the. Um, Robot Chicken is run by uh, Seth Green and Matthew Sunrich that used to work at, uh, he used to be one of the head editors at Wizard Magazine. So he came out here and, yeah, for the third season they were, they were trying like a rotating cast of writers for every, for every five episodes they were changing up who, like they were bringing in a couple new writers to help them out. And so he, when he was, uh, coming up with who was, who who those writers were gonna be, he remembered me and gave me a call. Well, sure. Yeah, for for folks that aren't aren't aware or haven't seen it yet, you can actually go to YouTube and and you have you you've posted the the Wizard Film Award film that you did, and it's uh, the Real World Metropolis, and it's and it's the real world with with comic book characters, and it it could be uh, very easily a robot chicken skit. So I can see how how easy a jump that was for you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely think that's why they they thought of me. And, uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun working with those guys. Hopefully, if they do another season, I'll, I'll maybe get a chance to do it again. We do have a, a couple questions here from my cohorts on the, on the show, and you'll probably be able to figure out, uh, who a couple of them are from. Um, <laughs> if you could, uh, if you could write any book, existing or creator owned, what would it be, and who would you want handling the art chores? <laughs> well, I have to say that, I've got, me and Scotty worked on a on a blade pitch, so like a four issue blade comic, um, which you know is impossible because they can't because Mark Guggenheim just did a blade series that was really good. Oh, it was awesome. And, you know, yeah, and nobody bought it, so I don't think uh, they're going to be knocking down our door anytime soon. But I want to say that that is my dream project. If me and Scotty could do that as a graphic novel or four issues, I would 
literally do it for no pay. Wow, it's uh, uh that gets me excited. I'm I'm still angry that Blade got canceled. I thought that uh yeah. that Guggenheim and and Chaykin did just a fantastic job with that series. Yeah, totally. And that's that's the thing. You look at that and if and if that couldn't make it then I don't think Marvel will be trying again for a while, but yeah, you 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 see those characters in in comics and and they're pretty easy to pick out. You know the uh, characters like Iron Fist or Moon Knight, you know, Blade. You know that that kind of type of character. They seem to have a certain amount of shelf life where where Marvel will kind of keep them off to the side and then they'll let them come out for for a mini or or another shot at an ongoing. And it seems like you know after after that's done that they go back on the shelf and it, it's hard. Hard to kind of break them, break them out of storage for a while. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I guess that's just the business side of it. You know, you, you try it, and if it doesn't work, then I mean, I guess you know they're trying to run a responsible business, and I guess you, you have to put them away for a while. Or you know, it's hard, to, hard to make it make it make sense financially. What's been one of the most fun experiences writing comics for you? Um, I think the most fun I've had was probably. The new warrior, the new warriors, and not just because it was Scotty working on it, but the fact that me and Scotty got to got to come up with all that stuff, you know, and, and got to be there from the ground level, and Scotty got to got to color, you know, he, he even got to color the series, and he got to we got to redesign the characters and and everything. Um, that was the most fun, and then I had a lot of fun working on Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Big in Japan, just because I thought that. You know, when they came to me with that, that it was going to be for Seth Fisher, and Seth Fisher is such, you know, a distinct, a distinct artist, and and they just asked me to make, make come up with a script, you know, that was as crazy as his art. So that was fun, you know, just to try to get as crazy as possible, and then to see how Seth, even then, you know, managed to out crazy me when he actually drew it, was a lot of fun. So that was a big loss for comics whenever whenever he passed away. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, now, uh, Sal, one of the other uh, members of the cast here, is, is a huge Daredevil fan and always has been. You know, going going back years, he really enjoyed your Battle and Jack Murdoch miniseries, and he wanted to make sure that I asked how you decided to make Josie from Josie's Bar a real character in in the uh, Battle and Jack Murdoch series. Well, that, that's interesting because the artist Carmine, he actually had pitched that he pitched the series to Marvel and he had already actually drawn out um, four issues of plot like he had pretty much plotted out the series and Josie was a big part of that series and then when it came to me like I was brought in to, to restructure that and to um, and you know some things changed and I restructured things so certain scenes had to be lost and brought back but he, uh, Josie was all the way through that that first plot that he brought, and so I think in the in the original plot that he had done, he had them almost become an item, but then uh, but then Jack dies before they become an item, and then I just kind of tweaked it so that they hooked up right before he died. Uh, a lot of that can be uh, attributed to Carmine's first plot. Do you like working uh, with Daredevil as a character? Is he one that, that you could see yourself working on at, at some point on a regular basis? Yeah, definitely. But yeah, he's one of those characters that, you know, the people that have worked on him before 
cast such a large shadow that, you know, you don't want to just limp into a Daredevil story, that's for sure. Yeah, those are some so, uh, Titanic-sized shoes to step into anymore. Yeah, yeah they, they don't really get much bigger, so... <laughs> But, I mean, and that's why it was kind of fun to just play around the peripheral there. And uh, I, I think, I, you know, I'm really grateful to, to Carmine for, for bringing that story to Marvel and then for the editor for, uh, you know, bringing me on because I think, we, I think I, I'm pretty proud of that story. I think we did a good job. Looking, and I know that you're exclusive at, at Marvel, and congratulations uh, on that. Do you have a lot of desire to do creator-owned work at some point in your career? Yeah, I think it, at some point that would be a lot of fun. It's, I'm thinking about that. Like right now, I'm just concentrating. I'm pretty busy at Marvel right now, but I think down the line that'd be a lot of fun. We're uh, really looking forward to, uh, to more of your stuff. Uh, Spider-Man is, I, I think that's going to be an interesting experiment from from Marvel. We're excited that you're going to be a part of that and uh, and looking forward to how that all all works out here in the near future. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're, we're all definitely just, you know, I don't think it's really been done this way before, so I'm I'm hoping it works out just as much as everyone else is. Well, w- one last one here before before I let you go. Uh, and and Tom wanted me to ask this one: is there is there any competition with the the other three creative groups on on Amazing to see who spins the best stories? Oh, I think yeah, I think that definitely comes into play. And I mean, I know for a fact that I definitely give my scripts another, you know, another once-over because you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of the guy that wrote Back to the Future or, or you know, Dan Slaughter, Guggenheim. It's, uh, you want to make sure to put your best foot forward. So I, I, I don't know about them, but I'm definitely trying to, to embarrass them. And it's not to make you look good. It's to embarrass them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, well, Zeb, th- thank you so much, and uh, and know that you're welcome back anytime. I know that uh, that Scotty would love to uh, to ch- chat with you with the whole with the whole roundtable crew one of these days. But uh, uh, thanks a lot, and uh, best of luck on the upcoming projects. Thanks, man. Hopefully, I'll be able to make it out to Chicago and say hey to Scotty at some time. I'll pop in and say hey. Absolutely, and you know you're you're welcome at uh, Dark Tower anytime, and uh, and maybe make it out for uh, for the convention next year. Cool, man. Zeb, you have, you have a great night, man. You too, man. Take it easy. All right, bye bye. Let's get you ready for the week ahead with what is coming out in single issue and trade paperback releases. To start things off, here is Around Comics' very own Brian Salazar with a few of his picks on single issues that will be hitting comic shops this week. Hey guys, it's Sal with another look at some of the books that are coming out this Wednesday. By no means is this the complete list. It's just a few things I picked up and wanted to talk about a little bit. First up from Dark Horse, we have The Umbrella Academy Apocalypse Suite Number 2. This is a book written by Gerard Way of My Chemical Romance with art by Gabriel Ba. Uh, I love the first issue. I thought it was fantastic. If you haven't picked that up yet, I suggest going and pick it up. It's very much sort of got a Doom Patrol, Grant Morrison Doom Patrol sort of feel to it, but a little sillier, not as... Not as weird, maybe, but um, it's very good stuff, and, and I, I, uh, I highly recommend it. Interestingly enough, uh, in 2001, 
Gerard Way was trying to be a comic book artist and for whatever reason didn't get, break in. I don't know what uh, his art was like, but uh, back then, it's September 11th, the attacks of September 11th sort of changed his outlook on what he wanted to do, and and uh, he said that it really made him start the band and, and uh, change his life a lot. So um, interesting that that turned him away from comic books to music, which has now led him back to comic books as a writer. So, uh, Next up from DC, we have Batman and the Outsiders, number one, by Tony Bedard, by, and art by Quaith Turnbull. This is um, the relaunch uh, of the, the Batman and the Outsiders. Uh, originally, Batman was the leader of the Outsiders and had given it up over time, and, and now he's back trying to make the Outsiders sort of a strike force team for the JLA, so it should be interesting to see what happens there. Also from DC, we have The Best of the Spirit, written by Will Eisner, with art and cover by Eisner. This is a uh, collection of 22 spirit sections from 1940 to 1950, uh, featuring the, the original work of, of Will Eisner, obviously. Um, it's a trade paperback, 192 pages for 14.99. If you've never checked out the spirit stuff, this would be a good way to maybe introduce yourself to it. Uh, one more from DC before we move on. This is uh, Death and New Gods, number one of eight, from Jim Starlin, the miniseries, which will be the end of the New Gods. The New Gods, of course, uh, were a creation of Jack Kirby's, and, and Starlin confirmed in an interview that it would be the, this would be the end of the New Gods, uh, saying that uh, it's sort of the, the half um, half uh, mercy killing and a half honoring Jack, because he feels that a lot of people have you know sort of written the New Gods and done stuff with the New Gods since New Gods since Jack Kirby, but nobody's done it very well. Uh, moving on for Image, we have Capes, Trade Paperback Volume 1 from Robert Kirkman. Uh, this is a, a three-issue uh, miniseries that he had written. Uh, uh, not miniseries, but it's a 72-page backup story from Invincible. And it's about this uh, business that employs super-powered individuals to protect the city of New York. Um, it's 14.99, pages. I just love the Kirkman stuff uh, in that in Invincible universe. It's fun stuff. Uh, also from uh, Image, we have Lazarus Number 1 from Juan E. Ferreira uh, and Diego Cortez. This is a new series uh, by them. Uh, Juan uh, is from Rex Mundi, the creator of Rex Mundi, one of the co-creators of Rex Mundi, and this is a new series about a, a man who is immortal. And finally, on the list, we have Legion of Monsters hardcover from Marvel Comics. This is the uh, all the Legion of uh, Monsters mini uh, one-shots that they've done, Werewolf by Night, Morbius, Man-Thing, Santana with all the backup stuff. Um, plus, it has classic tales of horror and suspense featuring Scarecrow, Amphibian, and Legion of Monsters from Dead of Night number 11, Marvel Spotlight 26, blah, blah, blah. blah. It's a hardcover, 200 pages, 30 bucks. Uh, also, it includes it does include the uh, the um, Frankenstein story by our, our very own Scotty Young. So, you might want to check that out. And that's it. That'll do it for this week of Future Stacks. Yes, you can call it whatever you like. And now here's Chris Marshall of the Collected Comics Library to highlight new trade paperback and collected edition releases for the week. Okay, let's start out with DC Comics this week. And to start us off, we've got Showcase Presents World's Finest Comics Volume 1, collecting Superman 76 and World's Finest Comics 71 through 111. That, of course, is the Silver Age adventures of Superman, Batman, and Robin. We also have 52 The Companion for 20 bucks, which really reprints basically the first 
issues or so or seminal storylines of most of the major characters that were portrayed in 52, like Rip Hunter, the Metal Men, uh, Renee Montoya, the Question, and a few other characters as well. We also have Superman Bottle City of Candor, the trade. This collects a bunch of stories that take place within the Bottle City of Candor, of course. Over on the Marvel side of things, a really light week. Spider-Girl Volume 9, Secret Lives Digest, and Runaways Volume 7, Live Fast Digest. We are expecting two masterworks coming out this week. The first one is Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and The Avengers Volume 7. But both of those are not on the preliminary list as of this recording. So let's move down to Dark Horse. We've got Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The Long Way Home, which really kicks off Season 8 of the TV series in comic book form. And then in the classic department from Fantagraphic Books, we have the complete Pogo by Walt Kelly, The Daily and Sunday Strips, Volume 1. A little bit of interesting news came out this week from Marvel, if you didn't already see it. Uh, As you know, as I reported last week, we've been waiting 11 months for the Powers Volume 10 Cosmic trade to come out. And it did come out, and boy, it came out with a bang. The spine of the book was actually misspelled. It was uh, spelled... C-O-S-I-M-I-C, Cosmic, and as you can guess, it's created quite a stir this week uh, over uh, just about all the message boards that feature collected editions. There was an apology written by C.B. Sabolsky on this over at the Bendis boards, and if you want to read the whole thing, just go to my website, CollectedComicsLibrary.com, and scroll down. You'll see it, and you'll see a picture of the mishap, which you can get a nice large view or you can just go to your local comic book store and pick up a copy and look on the spine. It's rather funny and sad at the same time. So that's it for this week. I definitely didn't expect it to be this light. So for Around Comics, I'm Chris Marshall, Clifton Comics Library. Chris Marshall is the host of the Collected Comics Library podcast. You can find the podcast, release schedules, and checklists of everything collected at CollectedComicsLibrary.com. Welcome back to Answer Man. Uh, it is 3 a.m. on a uh, Sunday morning. Uh, I've just been to a birthday party. Uh, we ran out of beer. It turns out it's very hard to buy alcohol at 2 in the morning in Chicago. Uh, there's no 30 packs to be had in the entire Bucktown neighborhood. So, uh, you know, I cut the evening short, come back home. And uh, since it was a birthday party, I've sort of had a lot of wistful thinking about identity and uh, masochism. And that leads directly to the question that I'm going to answer today. Uh, when I decided to start doing this, where I w- was going to solicit questions from people, I immediately knew there was going to be a question that someone was going to ask, that someone was going to challenge me with and really come after me. Because there's one ultimate question in comic books, especially for a DC fan. And I'm going to answer that tonight. Because I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the energy. I'm feeling like I can really, you know, go after it. I can give you what you want. Or I could fail completely. And that's what this is about. This is about me just tossing stuff out there. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So here it goes. This is from Villainy. 
which is a very clever email name. And he asks, explain Hawkman's continuity. Seriously, I'm confused. Well, here's the thing with Hawkman. It is extremely confusing, and it becomes even more confusing the more you look into it. So I'm just going to give you the explanation off the top of my head that makes it work for me. What you had was the 1940s JSA Hawkman, which was the you know one that took you know took place back in World War II, who was an uh, archaeologist by the name of Carter Hall, who uh, discovers nth metal, gets you know discovers the wings, does all that. It's very simple. You have the Silver Age Hawkman, which was an alien by the uh, Thanagarian from the world Thanagar called Qatar Hall who is sort of an intergalactic police officer who, you know, gets sent to Earth and, you know, gets involved with the Justice League and all of that. And so you have those two characters, and immediately, just from the explanation I've given you, you can see where the confusion has always laid around this character, is the fact that uh, they never did a really good job of separating the Golden Age character from the uh, Silver Age character. They always... they had different costumes, but they had a lot of similarities. They, their names sounded extremely similar, even though their origins are completely different. They had similar sounding names. Um, Character-wise, just the way they interacted with people, the, the Silver Age Hawkman never had that much of a unique personality, so he sort of gets lumped in with that. And then every time DC Comics had one of their big continuity-changing events, like Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, and they had an opportunity to present Unified Hawkman, they always kind of fucked it up, you know. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, immediately afterwards, uh, Hawkman, which is the the Qatar Hall, the alien Hawkman, uh, has a certain, you know, sort of dickishness about him, uh, which, you know, if you've been reading my JLA blog, it seems to be a common character trait. Uh, He has a sort of certain character trait for about two years afterwards, and then when they relaunched Hawkman, they sort of changed the character a little bit, which was very confusing because he was interacting with other characters who had just been sort of reset. So there's a lot of confusion about that character. He disappeared during uh, Zero Hour, I believe, and overall they never, you know, they didn't really resolve it, how, you know, which in the new history of combining everything, you know, which was the true origin. Uh, which leads me to, <laughs> already confusing, leads me to the one of the best things I've ever read in comics, was Jeff John's explanation of how Hawkman is what he is. Uh, in the uh, JSA series, the little JSA series by um, Jeff Johns, uh, he wrote a story called The Return of Hawkman, which explains that Hawkman is sort of a reincarnated alien mixed with the Egyptian prince, mixed with all this stuff. What he did is, he set forth the precedent that when Hawkman dies, he comes back. And when he comes back, it's always a little bit different. But also, tying that all together has made it so that sort of all the versions of Hawkman you've seen kind of work. You know, the same Hawkman that was the Golden Age Hawkman was the Silver Age Hawkman, which was all that. It just, it, it gave it a very loose way to sort of say that every Hawkman you can think of is all sort of fits together. Now, if you start really looking at it really closely, it's going to fall apart with like a lot of things in comics. You start analyzing it too much and you take sort of the the creativity out of it 
and you sort of kill it, you know, you, you, and Hawkman's the ultimate example of this. Hawkman can be a great character, especially interacting with other characters, but if you really want to make a timeline of this character, it's going to be confusing. So my advice is do not even think about the actual origin of Hawkman or, you know, which Hawkman's correct. You know, pick the one you like and stick to it. Uh, this actually ties into another question that I received recently, which I think this is a really great opportunity to talk about this. Uh, this is an email from one Mr. Brent. Brent, I'm not going to say his last name. Uh, he asks, I just recently got into comics, and something has been bugging me about continuity and timing. Immortal Iron Fist, for instance, takes Danny Rand to Kunlun for a tournament between the seven cities, while New Avengers has Danny heading to New York to assist the Mighties. My question is, which comes first in the life of Danny Rand? Does Immortal come before New Avengers? Does this sort of thing work? One character in two simultaneous books. It can, in fact, work. Um, it's tricky, though. It, just like with Hawkman, if you start looking at timelines or you start looking at things too close in detail, you sort of... The, it starts unraveling. Uh, the way I've always looked at it is when you look at um, like a solo book of a character... It's written differently. It's written to showcase just that character. And oftentimes events, you know, six issues of a book could realistically take place over one day. So it, if you're stuck up on that timeline situation, you can think of the fact that, you know, the events that take place in uh, New Avengers, you know, The Last Arc, could take place over like a week. You know, the events in Iron Fist can take place over a day. But you also... I think you're better served almost by developing like a thick skin attitude towards time. Uh, there's so many times when you're going to be reading a comic book and the time is going to seem um, you know amorphous or confusing or it's not going to make sense. How can Wolverine be in every you know Marvel book? How can Batman? be in, you know, these four different Batman stories going on and be in the Justice League. And the way you have to look at it, and the way it's always worked for me, is look at the goals of the book. Like I said, a solo book's going to showcase just that character. A team book, you know, like New Avengers or a book like JLA, isn't so much hung up on that, just that one character. And so it's not out of continuity, but you kind of have to take it for what it is, and you kind of have to accept that it's realistic for these characters to have all these, you know, different things going on all at the same time. Uh, it used to bother me a lot, and eventually, as I sort of read more and more, and I sort of let go of that and sort of embraced the fun part of it. I mean, that to me is one of the things that can kind of kill the fun of comics. Is you read a book and you start focusing too much on time, or you start focusing too much on, you know, how does this origin fit with that origin, instead of just looking literally at the book that's in front of you. And one of the biggest things that I always want people to to walk away from when I talk to them about comic books is, you know, it's more than a Wikipedia entry, it's more than a timeline, it's more than like an Excel spreadsheet. It's supposed to be an entertaining story. It's supposed to be a little piece of pop art, and I think embracing that frees you up to really enjoy a lot of different things, and you, you find yourself sort of not worrying so much about the little stuff, like the the timeline stuff, and I think it helps you just enjoy the hobby more.
Uh, and that's it. I'm done. I'm surprised. Uh, I was debating doing this either now or in the morning before the Packer game. Uh, and I had to do one of the two because I'm a horrible procrastinator, which I'm sure the more of these I do and the more you hear me talk about what time I'm doing it, you'll, you'll find out that I'll do them really late at night or I'll sound really tired. I was I, I thought I was going to sound really tired, but hopefully I got more excited as as I went on. Uh, and I'm happy I did it now because I, I that was fun to do that. And, you know, if you want me to answer your questions, if, you, if you're hung up on something, if you, you're pissed that in 1973 The Flash keeps mentioning that it's 1973 and it's driving you insane, and you want me to quell your fears and, you know, and just sort of hold you, you know, audio-wise, you know, not physically. I can't come to you and, you know, hold you, but I can do this. I can use my voice and wrap around you and tell you it's going to be okay, and you're going to have fun with it, and that's it. The answer man just wants you to have fun. So if you have any questions for me, always feel free to send them to Tom at AroundComics.com. I love you. Bye. Around Comics is proud to help support the Hero Initiative. Hero creates a financial safety net for yesterday's creators who need emergency medical aid, financial support for essentials of life, and an avenue back into paying work. It's a chance for all of us to give back something to the people who have given us so much enjoyment. For more information, visit www.heroinitiative.org or call 310-909-7809. Twice a month, John Mayo breaks down the sales numbers and market trends to give us a more informed idea of what's happening on the business side of comics. This week, John takes a look at the numbers inside Diamond's Top 300. Here is a breakdown of the sales of the Top 300 comics to retailers through Diamond during August 2007. Please note that these numbers are based on what's shipped to retailers and not based on sales to consumers. An estimated total of 7,687,000 comics are sold to retailers, which is up by 43,000 copies from the previous month of July and up by 286,000 copies from August 2006. This equates to an estimated value of $24,623,000 at full cover price, which is an increase of $604,000 from the previous month of July. DC Comics came in at 38.44% of the total sales for the top 300 comics in August, with 94 different items on the list. DC sales totaled to an estimated 2,955,000 copies. The top selling item for DC Comics was Justice League of America number 12 in slot 2 with an estimated 131,000 copies. This was up 8,600 copies from the previous issue. Marvel Comics had 49.31% of the total sales for the top 300 comics in August, with 98 different items on the list. Marvel sales were estimated at 3,790,000 copies to retailers. The top selling item for Marvel Comics was World War Hulk number 3 in the top slot, with an estimated 152,000 copies, down 11,500 copies from the previous issue. Image Comics accounted for 2.9% of the total sales of the top 300 comics in August and had 22 different items on the list. The top selling item for Image Comics was Spawn 170 
in slot 106 with an estimated 23,700 copies, a decrease of 300 copies from the previous issue. One interesting move on the charts was Teen Titans number 50 in slot 28, with an increase of an estimated 10,400 copies, which was the biggest increase in sales over the previous issue for the month, resulting in an estimated 69,600 copies sold. For Around Comics, this is John Mayo. John Mayo writes the Mayo Report each month, which examines the sales estimates and market trends for comic book, graphic novels, and collected editions. He's also the host of the Comic Book Page podcast. You can find his article at comicbookresources.com and his podcast and sales estimates charts at comicbookpage.com. Comics aren't just in comic shops and bookstores anymore. Now you can find literally thousands of webcomics online. Jeremy Mullins is here to save you hours of searching on the internet by telling us where to find the best and brightest in the ever-changing world of webcomics. Thanks, Christopher. This week's recommended webcomic is The Perry Bible Fellowship by cartoonist Nicholas Gurich. If you're a fan of the unhinged humor of Gary Larson's Far Side, go ahead and consider Perry Bible Fellowship its amped-up, awesome, power metal-loving younger brother. Gurich's art style varies dramatically from strip to strip. Like the featured topics, no materials seem forbidden. Sometimes figures look like doughy-looking vector art. Other times the creator uses paint, charcoal, color pencil, watercolors, whatever, to summon forth a ridiculous landscape of texture, color, detail, and buffoonery. I look at it and it's like, what if Dr. Strange and Papa Smurf had a bastard kid? I've tried to describe some of my favorite strips in previous takes of this segment. Bump that. They're fucked up. Pull up pbfcomics.com and take a look for yourself. The web address one more time, pbfcomics.com. You don't have to just trust my stamp of approval. Gurich has received multiple major awards for the Perry Bible Fellowship, including the Ignatz Award for Outstanding Online Comic in 2005 and 2006, and he also won the Web Cartoonist Choice Award for Outstanding Comic two years in a row. Recently, Gurich won the Harvey Award for Best Online Comics Work. PBF is updated, albeit irregularly, on Wednesdays, but you can also find it in print. If you go to Amazon.com, you can order The Trial of Colonel Sweeto and Other Stories, a collection of comic strips of the Perry Bible Fellowship published by Dark Horse Comics. For Around Comics, I'm Jeremy W. Mullins. Jeremy Mullins is a professor of sequential art at the Savannah College of Art and Design. You can find more about the school and their programs of study at www.scad.edu. From the bowels of hell to your bookshelf, the Teddy Scares return in a third all-new sad, viciously humorous volume. Teddy Scares Volume 3 includes the heartbreaking origin of Edwin Morose, the arrival of Eli Wretch, and Super Cyrus, the even stupider alter ego of Abnormal Cyrus. Based on the popular toy line and featuring art from some of the industry's most promising new and established talent, Teddy Scares Volume 3 is a must-have for any fan of dark humor. For previews of Teddy Scares Volume 3 and tons of other ape entertainment goodness, visit our friends at www.apecomics.com. Sometimes reading your comic books backwards can be a good thing. And to prove just that, here is Jarrett Williams to give his manga pick of the week. 
this week I had the pleasure of picking up a book that I've been meaning to read for a long time now called My Dead Girlfriend by Eric White. The book came out Valentine's Day of this year and I'm reviewing it now because I will say it's probably one of the standout titles from Tokyo Pop this year. To give you a quick synopsis of the story, you're dealing with the Bleak family, these, this family who's over the past, I guess, say, centuries have had these outrageous deaths. Flash forward now, you deal with Finney Bleak, he's pretty much waiting for his moment to encounter, you know, death. And I mean outrageous deaths. Within the first couple of pages, you get to experience some of the things his family members have gone through. And I would say that first chapter was probably um, one of my favorites in the book, just for how comedic it was. I mean, it had some really nice laugh-out-loud moments. Finney is an interesting kid, you know, he's your average teenage character. He goes to this school, though, called Mephisto Prep, which is full of werewolves and mummies or whatnot. And, I mean, this this morbid cast. Uh, all the clicks are there. Anything you expect is sort of a high school drama is there. But I will say that White handled a lot of it in such a comedic way. Um, it was really fun for me to read. And you sort of know where the story's going. He... Finney meets this girl at a carnival named Jenny, and as the name implies of the book, she dies. And it's just cool to see how that little love story plays out between those two throughout the book. Um, it's a really quick read. You'll get through it in only a matter of minutes to an hour at the most. Um, the art style really carries it along really fast. It's, it's sort of like watching a cartoon except in you know, comic book format. That's how really solid uh, White's artwork is. He has some great expressions. I love some of the chapters dealing with Finney and his family. and I'm really looking forward to see where this series uh, progresses to. I was looking online to see if Volume 2 was in the works or what's going on with that. But here's hoping that um, Volume 2 to My Dear Girlfriend comes out. I'm really excited to see where the series goes. An added bonus, too, is um, in the back you have you know a great art gallery by several artists, which I enjoyed, as well as seeing White's preliminary artwork for My Dead Girlfriend. So, I mean, you have a pretty solid package here. Definitely check it out. Um, you probably could find it anywhere now. Again, I'm a couple months late on it, but definitely check out My Dead Girlfriend. It's a solid read. When Jarrett Williams isn't reading manga, he is pursuing his MFA in sequential art at the Savannah College of Art and Design. And you can read more of his various stories at www.lunarboyland.com. We're back with the the last installment of our rant on Smallville, a show that makes it seem like uh, Beauty and the Geek is a good idea. Speaking of Clark and his gear, um, does anybody wonder why you'll see one character wearing, uh, you know, like a tube top and a skirt, and Clark is still wearing his goddamn Carhartt jacket? I mean, really? Is Do we need to be hammered home that Clark Kent is Superman? We are not as retarded as Lois Lane. You do not need to fucking baste us every five seconds with the Superman colors. We know that he will become Superman. 
Now we've introduced a new character, right? Jimmy Olsen. We've brought him in finally. And uh, I think that the the producers of the show really, really went out into the world of actors and really stretched themselves and found um, somebody who really fit the role. And and that's uh, Aaron Ashmore. Which shouldn't be at all weird that his fucking twin brother, Sean Ashmore, already played a villain on the show for multiple seasons. But hey, you know what? They're not the same actor. Technically, we're good. I know that they look fucking identical, but that's okay. Uh, this is Jimmy Olsen. The other guy was a fucking villain, stole uh, Superman's fucking powers. Don't worry about it. Well, uh, y- you didn't notice that. Again, you're all Lois Lane. You're all fucking retarded. Um, that's another one. Writers sitting in the room, producers sitting in the room, laughing their fucking asses off. off, off. Now, again, uh, I haven't finished the whole season yet, but uh, plastered all over the DVD boxes is, uh, you know, that sweet uh, Michael Bay-style shot of the Justice League walking away from an explosion, uh, which I'll tell you what, man, I am so excited to get to that episode where we got all the Justice League, all these random kids that uh, have come together. I I see that Aquaman now has an official costume prior to the last season when he just had, uh, you know, some swimming trunks and and uh, way too overly developed shoulders uh, swimming through the water. But now he now he has the Aquaman costume. Um, so the Justice League episode is something that really I've probably been waiting for my whole life because uh, I it, it is kind of the culmination of everything awesome in the world. Um, so we'll see what happens when I get to that one. Maybe I'll do a rant on just that episode alone. The one saving grace to this show is um, Allison Mack who plays Chloe Sullivan. Um, I would do terrible, terrible, dirty, dirty things to Chloe Sullivan. I just can't help it. Uh, Not necessarily the reporter side of Chloe, but I think there's a freak in the evening somewhere inside Chloe. She was really a nasty freak. She just loved to get down with sex all the time. She was like, any time of day, she was like, yeah, let's go. I'm so nasty. And I'd be nailing her. Oh, shit. She'd be like, oh, you're nailing me. Cool. She's just so short and blonde and got the thick little, oh, motherfucker. Oh. So, yeah. Chloe, you probably saved me from uh, killing myself, drowning myself in the tub, throwing myself off uh, my porch. Uh, All these things from watching the show. You are the one that brings it back down for me. More screen time for Chloe Sullivan. Alright, overall, you know what? I really can't figure out why I'm still watching this fucking show. Uh, I want to take the razor blades, want to slit the wrists, yet I hit next when the episode's over and I move on to the next one. It's like uh, I have some naive desire to watch and watch and hope that this show changes and gets better. I don't know why I believe that will happen. Um, maybe it's the, the crazy comic book fan in me that will stick with something years past its time, but, oh, it's the same characters, I gotta still buy it, doesn't matter the quality, uh, so, you know, I don't know why other people still watch it, I can't figure out why the network still airs it, um, at this point, it is a fucking train wreck that, uh, that I feel stupid for watching, and I will probably keep watching, uh, for a long time to come, so guess what, I'm just as fucking retarded as the show, the show.
when he's not writing the continuing adventures of Catwoman, Will Pfeiffer is a DVD and movie reviewer for the Rockford Register Star. Here's Will to tell us about what's happening in DVDs this week. First up, a few noteworthy releases that will be hitting store shelves on Tuesday. Continuing a Halloween theme of recent weeks, we've got the Amityville Collection, which includes Amityville 1, 2, and of course, 3D. No word on if you get a free pair of goofy glasses or not. Of slightly more recent vintage is the director's cut of Hollow Man, the 2000 Paul Verhoeven movie. If you've ever dreamed about seeing, or not seeing, an invisible Kevin Bacon sexually assault someone, here's your big chance. Also, an ape vanishes right before your eyes. You don't want to miss that. Transformers makes a surprisingly quick trip to DVD, allowing moviegoers whose eyes couldn't keep up with the CGI action to finally make some sense of the movie with their remote controls. The other half of Grindhouse, Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror, also lands on disc, with plenty of gore, blood, testicles in a jar, and Rose McGowan with a machine gun for a leg. Now that, my friends, is entertainment. Look for the entire Grindhouse double feature to be collected as soon as everyone buys both movies separately. Finally, if you're looking for true horror this Halloween season, look no further than the new DVD of Jingle All the Way, Arnold Schwarzenegger's 1996 Yuletide epic. Be sure to watch for Jake Lloyd, a.k.a. Little Darth Vader, playing the Terminator's kid. For this week's cult DVD pick, I'm recommending 42nd Street Forever, a collection of vintage movie trailers from Synapse Video. These are the sort of movies you could catch during the glory days of Times Square Sleaze, if you were lucky. Instead of describing them, I'll just list a few titles. The Undertaker and His Pals. I Dismember Mama. The Three Dimensions of Greta. Werewolves on Wheels. They Call Her One-Eye. Shocking Asia. Death Will Have Your Eyes. Behind Convent Walls. And, of course, the gay biker classic, The Pink Angels. The disc has dozens of these clips, and though most of the movies are so bad you never want to sit through them, watching the fast-paced, sign-the-thrill trailers is entertaining and educational. Trust me, you never realize movies can be so damn crazy. So that's it for this week's DVD scene. I'm Will Pfeiffer for Around Comics. You can find Will's written reviews at the Rockford Register Star by visiting go.rrstar.com and going to the entertainment section. You can also visit Will's blog at willpiper.com. And that'll take care of another Monday edition of Around Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. Make sure to come back on Thursday for Around Comics, the Comic Culture Roundtable. It's an informal and entertaining roundtable discussion about the world of comics and pop culture. You can visit us online at aroundcomics.com. You can contact the show via email at info at aroundcomics.com. You can also visit us at MySpace and Comic Space. And if you like the show, you can leave a review at the iTunes Music Store. I want to thank you for listening today and making Around Comics your source for comic book news, reviews, and opinions. We'll be back again next Monday for another edition of the Comic Culture Podcast. In the meantime, we'll be everywhere in and around comics.
views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Any reproduction, retransmission, or rebroadcast without the express written consent of Around Comics is strictly prohibited. All content presented in this program is the sole property of Around Comics, and this has been an Around Comics production, copyright 2007. I love you, I love you, love me, baby, yeah.